Hi, John. Welcome to our studio. Hi there, Kevin. Um, you're a professor in psychology. What does a professor in psychology have to do with events? Well, um, I'm a professor of social psychology and my research specialism is crowd and group behavior. So group behavior, crowd behavior is highly relevant for live events, how people behave together in crowds, uh, what are the causes of different kinds of crowd behavior, um, how can different uh, approaches in the management of crowds improve safety and improve experience. So a lot of the work that I do and other colleagues do on crowd psychology is highly relevant for the live events industry mm -hmm. and for crowd safety in particular. Does that um, involve how crowds move and why they move and how you can, as an event organizer, anticipate on that? Um, some of the research is on crowd flow. Uh, for example, uh, it's been an assumption in the past when you look at models of pedestrian behavior mm -hmm. that sometimes inform planning, they tend to treat people as a bit like billiard balls. Um, and they're all the same and they just move as individuals in, in a mass uh, without really thinking about relationships. So um, things started to change when modelers started to recognize that people in big crowds often uh, form little subgroups. But more than that, people even in um, uh, movement to and from locations when they're walking along, sometimes try to stay together in larger groups uh, as seeing each other as part of the same uh, crowd and uh, feeling um, comfortable in that close proximity. Um, so, you know, this work is relevant for that because if you think of what happens in a crowd that is, um, trying to stay together as individuals rather than a crowd who which are just individuals uh you know moving independently it tends to slow down the rate of movement right so then that's something you want to take into account in your planning so some of the application is to the flow of people but i can also imagine that in designing the the event space or outdoor uh, venue whatever you use that you also need to keep in mind uh, how narrow or how broad uh, passageways needs to be uh yeah i guess so i don't think that's been happening up to now i mean this work on the psychology of pedestrian movement is relatively new uh in the past the only um uh, planning done around the psychology of behavior in uh, pedestrian movement was around width of exits and so on. So all, all this is relatively new. And it, it, it says more than, uh, it applies more than to uh, pedestrian flow. It also applies to the, the indoor spaces, right? Because if you have a, a, a capacity figure, you know, you might tend to assume if you're a bit naive, I suppose, that people are kind of evenly distributed around that. And then you're, you're guaranteed a, a person per square meter measure of a certain size that is, is safe, right? But what happens is there are valued spaces for your crowd. Your crowd values certain spaces, most obviously at the front. And if it's a, a crowd with a strong sense of shared social identity, which is a key idea for us psychology researchers, uh, which means people see others around them as part of a we or an us, 
then all the usual concerns around personal space uh, change and people are more comfortable being in situations which you might otherwise say are um, uh, unpleasant because they're very close together. And so they will gather in these places, uh, you know, valued places. And at that point, the space per person, the uh, uh, per meter space becomes very, very tight. Um, and so if you know your crowd identity and you know their valued spaces, you know where the gathering is going to be, where they're exceeding your safety level in terms of people per square meter. And you might want to do some planning around that, um, particularly in terms of what you say to people uh, and where you place your spotters and your personnel. Is there also um, a link with psychology in how and what you say to a crowd? Yeah, certainly. I think we need to distinguish between different psychologies, okay? So the psychology that I work with, that I use to uh, train people in the crowd safety industry is a new social psychology of groups, right? Now, if you go back 50 to 100 years, you'll find other kinds of psychology, which now we know are wrong. Because psychology, like all sciences, it has changed over time and has more knowledge and evidence accumulates, it progresses, and old ideas are discarded, and new ideas start to prevail, okay? Now, everybody works with psychology in a way, right? Because we all make assumptions mm -hmm. about other people's behavior. And if you're running an event, you'll be making an assumption about the kind of behavior you'd expect from the people attending your event, and that will shape the way you relate to them, the way you manage them, the way you communicate with them, what you say to them. Now, let me give you a, a dramatic example, because the most dramatic example is when there's an emergency, mm -hmm, right? Indeed. Because there's an, old, there's an old idea about how, how crowds behave in emergencies. And this old idea is very influential, not only with uh, practitioners, but with the members of the public. And that is when there is an emergency, say there's a fire in your venue, how will people behave? And the old assumption is that people will panic, meaning that they become irrational, they become selfish, they lose control of their behavior, and that leads to more deaths and injury than the fire itself. So what do you do? Okay, so what you don't do is you, tell, you don't tell them that there's a fire because you think they'll panic. But you know, what's the danger there? The danger there then is they don't evacuate quickly enough. Because <laughs> we know Indeed. from decades and decades of research on fires, the reason that people die isn't panic, it's because they don't get out quickly enough, right? So therefore, if it's not panic that, that happens, actually it, it tends to be an underreaction. And if people tend to cooperate more than act selfishly, which is something we also know, then what do you do as an organizer to facilitate that, right? So in all emergencies, our advice now is that you equip the public with information. You give them the capacity, the confidence, the efficacy to respond appropriate, appropriately themselves by telling them what the emergency is, where it is, where the exits are. You inform them. So it's the opposite of the old psychology that you don't tell them, right? Because that old psychology is actually really dangerous. It's really dangerous to make those assumptions about human behavior. Um, and uh, today we're saying something different, you know, uh, it's communicate, right? 
But that communication, there's something else you need to do, which is to build your relationship with the public or build the relationship with the people that come to your event, because they are more likely to trust what you say, to believe what you say, to internalize what you say, whether it's an emergency or something more mundane, as in where do you, you know, where do you queue and how do you queue and where the where the toilets are, whatever it is, they're more likely to believe and trust what you say if you have a good relationship, which you build over time to try to create a sense that we're all the same group, right? That you, the organizers, and the public are part of the same group. Because people tend to believe in group members more than people who aren't in their group. So that's quite a bit of work, but it has uh, a lot of rewards in terms of uh, down the line benefits. Uh, it's, it, it is an intriguing example, but I'm, I'm a little bit triggered uh, on how to apply this principle. Because if you're organizing a, a music festival, in a typical case, you never see the organizers up front. Uh, you just buy a ticket, you get your ticket, you go to the event, you see the signs, okay, I need to queue here and then and, and, and there and so on. But you're saying now, no, it's really important that you, you start building some kind of a relationship. Do you have some examples of how you could do that or maybe even events who are actually already doing this? Yes. Um, Roskilde is a good example. So Roskilde is known through the industry as a place which in the past had tragedy and in, as a place also in the past which um, had uh, more less serious problems. It had a crushing incident, by the way, but it had less serious problems, but still problems with crowd surfing. Okay, so how did it? How did it? How did it um, uh, engage with uh, people coming to the events so that they come to the events knowing that crowd surfing is not a norm? It's not what we do, right? We don't do that. You can't just do that on the day. I, I agree with you, right? So they they did do it in advance, right? So the way they did it was through Facebook groups. So the people coming to attend the event, they get they get a sense of community built up over months through Facebook groups that all the uh, uh, people coming to attend, the organizers, the volunteers, they're all members of. And within those groups, you can talk about who we are. What kind of things do we do at Roskilde Festival? Um, they also managed to solve some of their queuing issues through the same kinds of techniques, right? So building that relationship with the fans because the, the queue was a bit unruly um, and through developing the relationship uh, with them, they managed to have a more, a more manageable queue without the use of so many fences. So it can be done. It is a bit of work, but I'm saying it's worth it. But it is then the, the, the sense of belonging to the same group, the fact that you don't dare to go against what is the group knowledge or the, 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 the consensus in how to behave? Yeah, so at one level, of course, there are staff and there is the audience and these are different, right? But at another level, no, we're all part of this festival. We are a community part of this festival. And in psychological terms, that can be a shared social identity, right? And a sense of us or we that is shared by both staff and, uh, and the audience. And when people identify with a group, they tend to internalize the norms 
that's the rules associated with the group. So how do I, as a member of this group, behave? What is the, the right way for me as a member of this group to behave, right? So they don't need to be disciplined all the time or managed all the time because they've internalized it and it drives their behavior. If you think of most events, most at most live events, people do manage their own behavior in conformity with the norms of the event without being micromanaged. How does that happen, right? I mean, if you think of the mega events, you don't have staff micromanaging every member of the public. It doesn't happen, right? They, they to some extent, they've internalized and they behave in the right way. And I think a nice illustration of, of that is the natural experiment we've had over recent years. I think we've all heard the stories about what's happened since the live events industry has opened up again after the lockdown. Right? Mm -hmm. And we all know that there's been change in audience behavior, right? And there's been more disruptive behavior, more disrespectful behavior, more audience members throwing things on stages, trying to get in. We, we're all aware of this. What's going on? Well, one explanation is that there are many more new people getting involved that haven't been socialized into the norms of the uh, of the of the culture of of the gigs and other other events than previously so they are not um uh, they haven't internalized those norms and the people around them are not uh, probably haven't got the confidence now to to intervene like they would have done in the past um so but normally in a normal in a normal situation you would have that that self management applying because mm -hmm. people are conforming to what they believe the group norm is. It's, it's, it's a very interesting view, uh, John. Um, for people who want to know more of, about your field of work, you will be speaking on the Event Safety Day um, in a couple of weeks in, in Belgium. But maybe there are also, there's also a website or, or, or some other place where people can follow your work. Uh, yeah, there's the Crowds and Identities uh, website. It's got links to my publications, some of my... Uh, courses that I run um, uh, and other uh, things of interest. Okay, we will make sure to put those links uh, in the show notes so people can find yeah. them uh, easily. Um, yeah. John, I really want to thank you for your time and joining us uh, today. Uh, it was a very insightful uh, talk. Okay, thanks, Kevin. Good to speak to you. And you at home, thank you for watching our show. I hope to see you next week.